Uh, it's my great pleasure to introduce Tim Pickervance from Biola and my colleague uh, Matthew Benton from Oxford. Uh, and they'll be discussing uh, Tim, uh, Matthew's paper, Pragmatic Encroachment and Theistic Knowledge. We'll begin with uh, Tim. I just want to start by saying uh, thanks to John for heading up this big project and also thanks to Charity in Georgia. They've been working really hard to make it easy for us to get over here and, and be with you all. So uh, thank you all for that. Um, I'm not going to spend much time saying what goes on in Matt's paper because I take it you all have uh, had a chance to look at it. And so I'm just going to say a, a little bit uh, by way of summary. And I'm, I'm reading him as making, uh, at least these are the three claims that I'm uh, most interested in. Uh, the first one is that Pascal's wager, as it turns out, supplies robustly epistemological reasons, not evidence, uh, but epistemological reasons, uh, contrary to what people have thought up to now. Secondly, uh, we can see that this is the case by considering the wager in light of Mark Schroeder's framework for understanding pragmatic encroachment. And then third, because of these reasons that we can call from the wager, it turns out not to really be possible to know that atheism is true, but it may nonetheless still be the case that you might know that theism is true. So uh, the first thing that I want to say uh, about this is really just to ask a question. Um, in, in the paper, there's a lot of stuff about stakes and there's a lot of stuff about Schroeder's framework, uh, these costs of error type considerations. And for my part, I just wasn't entirely clear about the relationship between these two. It seemed to me that the bits about costs of error were doing most of the heavy lifting. And I, I wasn't quite sure how the bits about stakes hooked up to that. And so I was just hoping that Matt might say something uh, by way of explanation uh, about the role exactly that he thinks the stakes are playing in the argument. Um, so I, I'm hoping that he'll you know, fill us in on that. Um, and that's, that's just a question. Uh, and that's the boring part, I suppose. So uh, now I wanted to raise some worries. Um, and, and really, it's, it's one worry that has three uh, manifestations. So this is uh, what's going to follow is now three versions or three variations of the your decision table isn't filled out right theme. Uh, so here's the first one. It's the two rows variation of the your decision table isn't filled out right theme. And it goes like this. Um, look, wagering for God doesn't seem to actually guarantee infinite utility since it doesn't guarantee that one believes that theism is true. But if that's right, then it's not clear that the type 2 costs of wagering against God, supposing God in fact exists, are really so bad. Now, we're going to, uh, that is to say that wagering for God doesn't guarantee uh, getting the goodies, as it were. So there aren't these great type 2 costs, or maybe they're not. And we're going to come back to this later to make a different point. Um, but it seems to even get worse than this because there's no theistic religious tradition according to which bare theistic belief guarantees eternal reward. Indeed, most historically anyway are exclusivist. And so bare theistic belief, that is theistic belief unattached to some particular variety of theism, in fact, worries about universalism aside, guarantees either hell or annihilation on these traditional views. Um, and so what you're missing out on if you wager against God, the, the type two cost, as it were, is hell or annihilation, uh, given the way that he has this thing set up. And that looks maybe like a reason to wager against God's existence, not for it. 
Um, and at least that way, if you wager against God, you'll maybe get the little bit of good that comes from living as if God didn't exist. That's usually how it's set up. So, uh, and, and so given this point, um, this is the troubling part for Matt's argument, I think. It looks like there maybe isn't a preponderance of type two costs over type one costs, but that's exactly the thing that Matt needs to get this Pascalian stuff to count as an epistemic reason for forming the belief that God exists or wagering for God. So specifically, the expected utility of wagering for God when God exists is not infinite, and that was the value we were using to calculate the type two costs of wagering against God. So that's the first variation. That's the two rows variation of the your decision table isn't filled out right theme. Here's the second variation. This is the need more rows variation of the your decision table isn't filled out right theme. And it goes like this. Uh, this is something actually Matt talks about in the appendix, and, and really what's going to happen here is I'm going to ask him to say more about this. So uh, if you add in all the options, not just sort of bare theistic belief or wagering for God, if you add in Islam and Christianity and Judaism and Hinduism and so on and so on and so on, uh, this might make things worse for his argument anyway, it seems to. So suppose you wager for Islam, but it turns out that classical Christianity is true. Then you uh, get some baddies, you get something really bad. Uh, you get a high type one cost. And indeed, you've also missed out on something really good. You've missed out on some goodies, and that's a high type two cost. Uh, but the same is true if you wager on classical Christianity and Islam turns out to be true. So the type one and type two costs of error for these various options look like they may just wash out. And I mean, no doubt you'd have to do a lot of work to show that this is the case, including some hard work in comparative religion. Um, but anyway, any reason you have for going one way or another, if that works out, if they do wash out, based solely on considerations of these sorts of costs, again, they'll just balance out. So you'll be back to whatever situation you were in with respect to reasons anyway, uh, prior to accruing these reasons with respect to the question, what one ought to do. So it might look like if you add in all these extra rows, the evidence alone might be all you have to go on. And there might, of course, still be pragmatic encroachment because it may turn out that knowledge in this area is just not possible. Uh, so you have, and I think Matt in some ways recognizes this, uh, you might have the resources for a new argument for religious skepticism on the basis of pragmatic encroachment. Um, and that might be sort of interesting to think about. So again, Matt responds to this. And part of his response, and this is a quote now, and this is on page 16, he says, only the options alive to one can constrain how one draws up a decision table for counting up the costs of being wrong. That's, again, on page 16. So let's assume that the options alive to me are the ones to which I would assign some significant non-zero credence. Well, then I doubt that you might think of this uh, the one true decision table for my decision is constrained by the options alive to me understood in that way. Um, if I had to bet, in fact, I would bet that this claim is probably false. So suppose, for example, that there is a religion that I've never heard of. I've just never heard of it. Uh, one that has historically, though, had lots of followers. Um, maybe even today has significant clout in a part of the world of which I'm just not acquainted. Um, and I, I actually take it that this is the situation that a lot of people are in with respect to, for example, classical Christianity. Um, and suppose that if this religion turns out to be true, this make-believe religion, potentially, um, I'm in big trouble. So lots of baddies are going to come my way if I die in my current state. Well, it seems to me that this would raise the type 1 cost of error involved in believing the religion that I, in fact, believe. 
In other words, there ought to be a row on the one true decision table for me having to do with this religion. But since I've never heard of it, I give it no credence, whatever. Uh, so what, why am I saying all this? Well, the upshot is something like this. Um, I think Matt needs to just say more than he does about this problem posed by the presence of specific theisms. Um, and he says, you know, he's concerned only with this necessary condition on getting the goodies and avoiding the baddies. And I just want to hear him say more about what that really means. Um, given that we are concerned with just necessary conditions and not a sufficient one, it seems like we really can't fill out the decision table with any kind of meaning. Um, that's, that's the worry. And so I'm, I'm hoping that he can say something about that. Okay, so that's the need more rows variation of the theme. So here's the third one. This is the, uh, this is maybe the worst one. This is the he can't fill it out variation of the your decision table isn't filled out right theme. All right. So given that Matt is talking about wagering, it's actually not clear to me that speaking about costs of error is apt. Uh, so we can approach this point by noticing, for instance, that wagering for God and wagering against God are not exclusive options when it comes to belief. So here's what Matt says about wagering. Uh, wagering, this is on page 8, wagering denotes either making up one's mind or taking steps which would indirectly aid one in doing so. That's on page 8. So if that's all wagering is, then even assuming a belief in bare theism gets you the goodies, if theism is true, waging for God doesn't guarantee one the goodies for the simple reason that it's compatible with believing that atheism is true. And likewise, assuming disbelief in bare theism gets you the baddies if theism is true, Wagering against God doesn't guarantee one the baddies, because it's compatible with believing that theism is true. So again, this looks like it, it, it suggests anyway to me that talking about error when it comes to the decision to wager for or against isn't all that helpful, because wagering is just not a truth evaluable sort of deal. Uh, but it's the truth evaluations that are mattering to counting up the costs. So. In other words, given a wager for God, you can't yet tell whether there's error involved because wagering uh, doesn't involve belief or disbelief. So um, what are the costs then involved with wagering one way or another? Well, who knows, right? I don't know. Uh, it depends on what you wind up believing, and wagering doesn't guarantee that either way. So maybe there's an easy fix to this. You just have to change the setup from one having to do with wagering to one having to do with believing, and that seems right. But then we're back to these troubles uh, that are, I was trying to raise with these two other variations on the your decision table isn't filled out right theme. And so again, I think if you want to make that move, that just points up the need to say something more about these problems posed by specific theisms. So, thanks. Thanks, Tim. Um, so I don't know if I can, I probably can't, deal with each of those succinctly in seven minutes. Um, probably will come up a little bit, but allow me to try to address the what I think is the first worry and the third worry all at once. A lot of this has to do with my talk of wagering or not wagering rather than talk of belief, and where wagering is supposed to be a kind of catch-all term for taking a step which is supposed to be resolving to belief. So this is supposed to be an epistemology paper, and because of that, and not like a... <laughs> paper about religious pluralism or religious diversity or soteriological questions having to do with different religions. Um, I'm keen to avoid problems stemming from 
whether doxastic voluntarism is true, um, whether you can decide to believe or, 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 or indirectly do so. Pascal himself is sensitive to this. Um, Garber, in his, some of his discussion of Pascal, says things like, I'm actually worried that if I take the right kinds of steps indirectly to affect my belief, that it will eventually lead me, inevitably, to possess that belief. Because we can do things, we, there are things we do have control over, which can lead us to believe. So I was just taking it for granted that whatever wagering consists in for you, if it's, as Pascal says, something like, you know, go to church, take holy waters, avoid your atheist friends, or whatever, that, like, that's the kind of thing that will eventuate for you in belief of the right kind. Um, so I, I don't want to say that um, belief is the kind of thing that you can just grab hold of and, and have. Um, I do want to say that there are things you can do. And as a result, I don't, want, I don't need to have the decision table talk just about belief because I want it to be the kind of thing that's something you can decide between. Um, and as a result, also the notion that it might be that wagering itself or even belief on lots of religious traditions is not sufficient for getting the goodies that are on offer, that we have to talk about this being a necessary condition and not a sufficient condition for gaining the goodies. Um, I don't, I can see why it looks problematic because we want to think of drawing up a decision table and having expected utilities be the kind of thing where we're like, oh, necessary and sufficient for me to get these goodies conditional on P is that I do X. Um, but I don't, I don't think we need to buy into this talk that that's really going to be a problem because if we're just going to consider an action which is a necessary condition of gaining something, some outcome, another action that's a necessary condition of gaining some other outcome, then we can draw up a decision procedure that's going to allow us to say, look, insofar as I care about getting this outcome or getting that outcome, then I still can run the procedure such that I take that action to position myself to get that outcome. Um, it's neither here nor there that my acting in that way is going to be sufficient for getting the outcome. There might be some other things I have to do later. But if it's a necessary condition, then if I do the other thing, I'm not going to... If I do the other action, I'm not going to be in a position to get the outcome that's associated with the first action that's a necessary condition and getting that other outcome. So, I don't actually think those are huge worries. Um, there is another thing that's really crucial that you've started with, which is a sort of Substance question about the connection between stakes and costs of error and what's going on here because it's supposed to be paper on pragmatic encroachment. Pragmatic encroachment deals in stakes. <laughs> and I'm borrowing from Charity and John, what we're going to talk about later today, uh, a particular view of stakes that just has to do with you know, the gap between expected utilities for some actions. Um, and what I think is important here is that if you have that notion of stakes, or any notion of stakes that looks to be adequate, you're going to get a kind of umbrella category for talking about a situation or a decision or an action that's high stakes, but that that alone is not going to help us understand how it is that those high stakes can affect what will go on with respect to, you, to what, what comes about given that you want to act a certain way. So, um, importantly, I think, Schroeder's discussion of type 1 and type 2 costs of error gets us more precision even within the umbrella category of high stakes. Um, this is, so part of the reason I go with the notion of high stakes I go with, which Tim and um, Daniel in their paper don't like, uh, or at least they don't go in for, rather. Um, 
I go with I go with the one that John Charity gives so that then I can say something else about cost of error. And I think what this is what this tells us is like if we've got here's why I think this is important. If you've got a, just a basic um, some value v, some some value um, losing v z q call it. Um, we can talk about a high. We can label a situation or a decision high stakes just based on the difference between the expected utility of y and the expected utility of xing, right? Um, but those ways of of calculating costs tend to prioritize just what Schroeder calls type one errors. Um, namely, if it turns out that P, suppose you so there's this dimension, but there's this dimension, and suppose you decide to y because you regard not p is more likely than p, and you, you, know, you can build in the, the outcomes the way you want to make this plausible. Suppose you y in an effort to get q, because you expect that not p, or you expect p, not p more likely than p, and it turns out that p, well, there's, there's one kind of error, which is the difference between what you tried to get with what you did and what you, what you in fact got. That's a kind of cost of error. And that's one delivered just by standard um, decision theory. But this this vertical dimension is not really captured by that. And that's the type 2 cost of error that Schroeder's on about, um, and that I'm on about in this paper. Namely, given that p, you, you're in a position, it seems, to go for x, which would have gotten you v. And if you prefer v to z and you prefer q to z, then there's another thing you missed out on, but it's not delivered by standard decision theory. That way of talking about things gets us more precision about the kinds of costs involved under the rubric of high stakes. Um, and so I think it doesn't really matter if you wanted to build into high stakes these potentially different kinds of costs. That's fine. What I'm doing is just saying, let's settle on the notion of high stakes. We'll stipulate what it is so that we're clear about it. And then we'll get to say something about how the high stakes can deliver certain kinds of costs. And it's those costs that are more specific ways of explaining what you ought to do with your belief or your action or whatever. Seven? Seven. All right, good. <laughs> okay, if you can just put up your hands and I'll try to remember if anyone, you know, whoever's got a question and I'll try, I'll write it down. And... Okay, should we start? Jeremy? Yeah. Well, I think it's. <laughs> um, can you say more about why you only have to put options that are live to you, which I think could be kind of a psychological notion. Um, why you only have to include those in the table. So, so why don't I, why don't you, as a believer, have to include... Um, a believer in what? A believer in God. Why don't you have to include the God who punishes all and only people who aren't atheists? I had to think about that. Yeah, no, you say that you don't have to include it because it's not a live option. I was wondering why the fact that it's not a live option means you don't have to include it. I would think that whether you don't have to include it would have to do with whether it's eliminated by your evidence and if, it, if it's if it is just as likely in your evidence as that um, a Christian God exists. I don't see why you get to include one and not the other. So, okay, hold on. Um, yeah. First thing is I think it's fine to say what it is for something to be alive to you is that um, at least your evidence might tell in favor of it, 
Um, another thing is that your evidence doesn't rule it out. And I was thinking that a, a certain kind of theist will be able to rule that out as a live option. How? Because there's no religious tradition on which that's... So it's not like you have to put on, on the table logical possibilities. That's not... No, it's not just that it's logical. I just don't see why the evidence supports the Christian God any more than it supports this other kind well, of... What God. do you mean by evidence in this case? Um, I mean, the Christian, the Christian who thinks there's a Christian God has a lot of evidence for thinking the Christian, the God that there is, has these properties. Um, that, I assume, is based on some evidence? kind of evidence from revelation and so on. So now, there's no, there's no, for that theist, there's no revelation that's giving them any reason to think that there's like a God who punishes but, believers and, and, you know. But the atheist is going to say that that evidence, well, they're not going to give much, they're going to give no credibility to that. I thought we were talking about the theist. I don't care. The theist doesn't care what the atheist says about this decision. No, but, but, the, but the atheist is going to say the theist is just wrong about what the evidence supports. I mean, they have this book, and, but, but it's got no evidential value, so they're going to say... Well, of course the atheist is going to quibble with what the theist thinks are the live options. The atheist is going to quibble with a lot of stuff the theist thinks. I will, yeah. Talk on the terms well, of either the theist or the atheist, and then we'll, we'll see what we yeah, need I, to worry about. I guess what I want to know, I guess I want to hear some, some, some of you will be convincing to the atheist about why the evidence, the revelation. I mean, we, we say there's no religious, what you say in the paper is that there's no religious tradition that includes this kind of um, believing Christian deity. Um, and I just want to know why that fact is supposed to actually count as good evidence for, or evidence that makes it any more likely that the, the, the believing punish, believer punishing deity doesn't so there's two, there's two things to say about this, at least, um, that come to mind. One is, the theist in that situation doesn't have any evidence that there is such a being, and has a lot of evidence that there's a different kind of being. That's, that's what that theist thinks. Well, they think that, but they're wrong. Well, that's, that's, that's not the issue. Because what we're doing in this appendix here is like talking about having chosen for bare theism the person's considering, in a sense, like, which... Which religious tradition to go for? What are the properties that God has? What does that require of me? And so on. Um, what the atheist thinks is neither here nor there with respect to that decision. That's, I don't see why that's relevant at all. I mean, but, the, this, we're talking about a, an individual who's, if, if they want to use this procedure, is drawing up a decision table for them. Someone else might come along and say, well, why, why is this decision table like this for you? And the whole point is like, well, it's my decision table given what I've got to go on. I mean, I don't, it, it's not any different than like, you, you doing what you got with your evidence, me coming along and say, that evidence sucks, because I've got some of this other evidence, or don't you know that there's this other evidence? And then if I can impart that to you, great. But if you don't have it, there's nothing that I can say to help you out. So the atheist might be wrong about what the good evidence is, and the theist might be wrong about what the good evidence is. What do you mean but by good evidence in this? Evidence that actually increases the degree to which the person is justified in believing this. And what would that be in this scenario? Well, I, I want to hear a convincing argument that the fact that um, there is a religious there is no religious tradition in which there's a punishing deity. I want to hear a convincing argument that that actually, for the theist, increases their degree of justification. That in fact there is no um, that there is no such deity. So. <coughs> The theist who's contemplating a bunch of religious traditions, they say God is like this in one tradition, they say God is like this in another tradition. This is the evidence for that individual. 
the evidence from comparative religion about the about the being in question. And you, by that you mean it's what they think the evidence is. You said this what is does the that evidence. mean? Well, the evidence, the evidence they've got to go on for making decisions about the properties that this being has, is a whole bunch of stuff that the, the, the various traditions tell. What else would there be? I mean, well, there's the evidence that actually increases the justification for that, <laughs> and this doesn't do that. I mean, I mean, what, why would, I, what I, I'm asking is why would consulting those traditions about what they say? So, are you are you making a distinction between the evidence they've got and what? Like, they, they consult some stuff and they think that this is evidence, but it's not? I mean, I wasn't... Yeah, that's, I want to give some reason to think that, in fact, it is evidence. Like, actual evidence that increases the chance for them. Not just the chance that they think is true, but actually increases the degree to which they're justified in believing that... Is there supposed to be some, like, objective measure of how evidence does this, in general? That's what I want, yeah. Well, I don't know that that's... I don't know that's available for anything, but... I mean, even here, like, look, if someone tells me by way of testimony that P, I think that raises the likelihood for me that P, unless I've got some defeaters or regard them as unreliable or something. Um, so I can think that that raises it for me, and in, when it does so, it does seem to raise it for me in general. So, like, is there something specific about the religious case that's supposed to be bad here, or? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, then we need to hear we need to hear something about that because lots of lots of lots of religious believers that are contemplating what to think about whatever, that's the kind of data or evidence or whatever you want to call it they're working with. Yeah. And and in in other areas, you know, maybe maybe they'll say something else is the evidence or data. There are lots of religious believers for whom it's like. They're, they read a text. Suppose they're wondering whether they should be Muslim or Christian or Jew or whatever. They read a, They might read some texts in um, one of those, the sacred texts in one of those traditions. They might pray to God and have some religious experience in which it's like clear to them that God is loving. They find evidence against God being loving being revealed by that text, so they want to stay away from that text. I mean, there's all kinds of considerations here, but I don't think it's going to help anyone to say, oh. Uh, the atheist will say that doesn't. That's not evidence because for them it does raise the, the probability that God's a certain way. Just because it wouldn't for the atheist, I don't think it matters. Okay, uh, charity. So it sounded like. Uh, I'm wondering if you need a. When there's an infinite cost to being wrong about P, that P is unknowable, and I just wanted to ask if you could say more about that, because I'm just wondering why you think that this, our evid evidence is such that we can, it's just unable to be had, you know, good enough evidence, we just can't have it when, when the cost is infinite. And I was thinking of um, another case where, say, um, you know, you could either go to heaven or you could go to hell and say there's something you have to do or something you have to believe uh, to go to heaven. And then God himself shows up and says, you know, this is what you have to believe to go to heaven and you don't have to do you know, these particular things. But it looks like on your account, because if you're wrong about you know, what he told you, you'll go to hell, that that's an unknowable, uh, what he said was an unknowable Proposition. Wait a minute. Um, that, the setup is supposed to be God tells you this, uh, but if you're wrong about what God told you? Or yeah, so God about... says um, 
to get to heaven, you only have to believe P. And you don't have to say feed the homeless. And you can get in heaven without feeding the homeless. But if you're wrong about that, and then you don't, you know, feed the homeless, then maybe you'll go to hell. But it looks like even if God himself tells you this, you can't know it because you're calling it unknowable when uh, there's a, a possibility of infinite loss. But, but did God... So, sorry. Is the setup supposed to be you're going you're gonna to miss out on heaven? What's the cost? You're going to suffer hell? What was the... Well, but yeah, you'll miss out on heaven and you'll go to hell. It's, the cost is infinite. So, so yeah, so I'm just asking. It sounded like what you were saying was when the cost is infinite, you can't... These propositions are unknowable. But it's a cost, it's a cost for doing what God tells you. So God tells you to do X, you do X. And X is the only thing you have to do to get the infinite reward? Or something? No, God tells you not to do something. He's like, oh, don't worry about the homeless anymore. I was wrong about that. <clears throat> and so then you stop feeding the homeless and you concentrate all your efforts on the other stuff that God said to do. Yeah. Right? And then Charity's worried that, okay, so you stop feeding the homeless because God told you to, and you've ignored this other evidence where God's telling you to feed the homeless, and now you're going to damn. So, so God's told you two but, things. Well, the, so there's a proposition. The there's a proposition that something like, to go to heaven, I don't have to feed the and I'm thinking that if you, if you believe that and don't feed the homeless, and then you're wrong about that proposition, then this possibility will have infinite punishment. But, why, but, but then it looks like you've got the best evidence you could possibly have for that proposition. God himself told you to. Mm -hmm. And, and you're, it looked like you would wanted to still call that unknowable. So I was just worried that... But this is one where you were thinking that the, if you're wrong about what God told you, I'm not, I'm still not following the setup, sorry. Maybe I'm just <coughs> slow. Um, well, I'm, so I'm just trying to push on the idea that something would be unknowable and that we couldn't have, even when there's infinite gain or infinite loss at stake, that we could still come to, to no certain and so I was trying to think of a case where you'd have the best possible evidence. I'm thinking God appearing and, and, and telling you something in a way that you recognize that he told it to you or something. This is going to be a candidate for the best, some of the best possible evidence you can get. And so I'm thinking it's a bad result if you have to say that that's still unknowable. But it's supposed to be part of the setup that you stand to, you stand, stand to lose if you're wrong, yeah. out on something of infinite value if... Um, so th is this different than like God telling you you have to believe and that's the one. suppose that's the necessary and sufficient condition mm -hmm. right. God tells you that that's what you need mm -hmm. but you still have the, can have these worries about whether that's in fact right uh, well, that will get me the thing that I'm wondering if on your account you can know that that, that, is, that it's true that that's all you have to believe to get to heaven given that if you were wrong about that I mean, it, it seems to matter that you're, you're throwing in the stuff about suffer, infinite suffering, right? Mm -hmm. The way I set it up is not appealing to anything like that. Um, so if, if, if the only thing is that you'd be missing, God says to do X, you do X. You can worry about whether X was in fact the thing you had to do to get the goodies, Tim's terminology. <laughs> um, there are no baddies in this setup, and you seem to keep adding in baddies, and I'm trying to see if that matters. Mm -hmm. If, if it's like, I do X because God told me, and, and so I should get the goodies, and you can still worry about whether God told you rightly, 
or something. Well, yeah, I'm not. I'm not so much worried about whether worried about or not you balance. would be justified in doing certain. I'm not really worried about what you're going to do. I'm worried about possible propositions that are unknowable, and I'm thinking the proposition, you know, that, you know, I don't need to feel, feed the homeless to go to heaven. That proposition looks unknowable, even though, and there'll, be, I mean, there'll be lots of other. That's just one example, but there'll be lots of propositions like that. So you but might you're still. Gonna, the, cost of, the whole point is that that's the P that you're worried about knowing, and there's supposed to be infinite cost involved in being wrong about that. But is that because God told you that if you don't do this thing, you're going to suffer greatly? Um, if, you do the, if you do the thing God tells you, and that's getting you the, the infinite reward, then what, what left is there to pr promote losing knowledge? I've not seen the Follow-up, because my question is related to this. Yeah. 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 Yeah about what the values and rewards are. And it looks, and I thought that this is what her worry was, it looks like you're going to end up having to choose the one that has sort of um, the worst possible consequences you're trying to avoid. But why Does that make sense? Because, so it seemed like what the, the worry was, okay, so you've got different claims to what God says. This is one of the problems of comparative religion. I think this is kind of goes back to what Jeremy said too. Like, okay, you've got the Quran and you've got the Bible and you've got the Talmud, and now, right, you've got these three competing books, which you know each of these religions take to be evidence. But Jeremy's worried: how do we know why? Why I think any of these things are evidence? Um, and you've got different claims in them about exactly what God wants and what the consequences are going to be. And so, suppose that you're Islamic and you've got the five pillars of Islam, and one of them is almsgiving. Right? And this is a necessary condition for being saved. And then God comes to you and says, Hey, don't worry about poor, you know, don't worry about the poor anymore, don't care so much. And well this I think would give you reason to think it wasn't actually God. Mm. But <laughs> right, suppose that you've got, you know, like this is your experience, this is God, and he's telling you that. Mm. I think the worry is in that situation, you should probably still be the homeless. Because the consequences of not doing are so much greater, right? So that's kind of the unknowable worry. Yeah, but I say so. I I, I agree in the appendix that um, we might want to say that given this setup, there's a whole host of stuff you can't know. Uh, sort of. But then shouldn't you hedge your shouldn't you hedge your bets then and go with what's going to end up looking like the worst god around? No, I mean it's not any different than any, right? the worst god, meaning the one who's the one who has punishing the everyone. Worst. Yeah, the one who's done the most horrible punishments that you were trying to avoid. Well, right? Doesn't it give you incentive yeah. to go for that? That just seems horrible. Maybe so. <laughs> I mean, I'm not in favor is the worry, of that God. Is the worry about what you can know or the worry about what you ought to do? I mean, um, my if, worry is about what you can know. Yeah. I mean, my worry is about what you ought to do, but it's really... Okay, so I have to answer both. Um, I, I'm, I'm happy to say that there's, there's tons of tension 
for the theist who's worried about these things, who has not committed, and even for the theist who's committed to a tradition and realizes that um, there are these rival traditions. Like, the problem of religious diversity is a problem for knowledge from within a tradition. I'm fine with saying that. My interest in this paper is just about whether one can know that there's a God. I mean, um, now, given, given a whole bunch of things that you might want to do, credences you might want to assign, outcomes that you think are going to ride on, certain propositions, just like any other decision matrix under uncertainty, you're going to probably have to make a choice and go with it, and you're going to do the best you can. This is what I mean by, like, at the very least, the, the, the options that are alive to you are the ones that are going to constrain what you ought to take into consideration. If you regard some as not live, well, just, just go with the ones that seem live, and then, you know, it's the best you can do. Um, so if you're a pessimist, you're going to end up with the worst possible God. Seems if like you're it. a pessimist. Well, if you're the kind of person to whom the live options always seem to be sort of the worst possible scenarios, then yeah, you are going to end up having to choose this really horrible God who like gives you maybe like a puppy in heaven but nothing else just because right? like, the alternatives are so horrible. It just, it just seems really bizarre. But does that fall out of what I'm getting at here? I'm not I telling... I think so. I think it has to do with your appendix and how you're caching things out. And there's like one footnote in particular I'm not going to look up now to let other people talk. But yeah, I mean, we can talk about it later. But I worry that like what you're pushing here is going to have the really unpleasant consequences. But what I talk about in the appendix has to do with the plausibility of the traditions you're interpreting. It, right, doesn't, yeah. it doesn't depend on first counting up the costs and then doing something. It has to do with like creating a coherent picture about what each tradition is telling you. Yeah, and then okay. using the ones that are left to like. So if you if you rule out Islam because of a certain number of things, and you rule out Judaism because of a certain, you know, then but I'm just saying that like the, your response to Jeremy was like the live options are the ones that appear live to you for whatever reasons. And I'm just saying if you're a horribly pessimistic, depressive person, but that sounds right. Like, if you're a horribly <laughs> pessimistic person, you're gonna options. it's gonna color how you view right. the religion you think is best. I mean, it's not that's but nothing to do with not my world. <laughs> Okay, I, I forgot to say, if you've got a follow-up question, just put one finger up and... Uh, okay. okay, Julian? Uh, yeah, so on different topics, uh, the, the general strategy seems to be like pragmatic encroachment views of knowledge uh, allows you to turn Pascal wager into a question of knowledge or epistemic justification. And what's crucial in this is something you said at the end of the paper, I think, so like, you said that at the end of the paper. Suppose one is newly considering P and is told that whichever is true of P or not P, if one were to believe P that belief would be eligible for knowledge, but if one were to disbelieve it, namely believe not P, that belief will be ineligible for knowledge. Being in this scenario would give one uh, reason and a distinctively epistemic reason for belief of a disbelief as well as uh, over suspending. So the idea is like if you have P, not P, and you know that, well, by believing P, you'll have a chance to get knowledge of P. Uh, by believing not P, you have no chance to get to know not P. Then you have an epistemic reason to believe P. And so I was wondering whether this is true in general. So I was thinking of a case like you wonder whether you are going to get some job and you haven't applied for the job yet. <coughs> and you reflect that you realize that, well, if I believe that I will not get the job, I will not do the application, and I will get to know that I won't get the job. 
But if I believe, at least right now, before the results are in, that I will get the job, this won't be knowledge because there are lots of other equally qualified candidates. So it looks like, at least, uh, you know, right now, my situation is such that uh, if I believe that I will not get the job, I will get to know that I will not get the job. While if I believe that I will get the job, I will not get to know that I will get the job. Uh, so it seems to me that in this case, the fact that believing P will prevent you from knowing, uh, you won't be able to know that P, makes it that you shouldn't believe P, you shouldn't believe that you'll get the job. But it doesn't give you an epistemic reason to believe that you will, the fact that you, yeah. by believing that you will not get the job, you will ensure that you get knowledge that yeah. you will get, not get the job, doesn't give you a reason to believe that. But that's, this is one where, this is good, um, but this is a scenario where by choosing one of them, you get to, as it were, force the matter about the truth. So like, it, assuming that it's a requirement of getting the job that you apply for it, and the boss doesn't just walk up to you and give you the job anyway, for, even if you apply for it. Um, this is one where your decision plays a role in what the truth might be. And I was thinking like, this, this kind of scenario is not one like that. You, what you choose is not dependent is, doesn't it in any way affect uh, what the truth would be or what, you know. Insofar as you play a role in whether you know, it's just that you can only know if you believe, and then the rest is sort of like, um, it could be that considering this is some of the stuff that comes up in short, you might think ends up pushing one this way sometimes, but it could be that some other things you could do would also play a role in whether you know, like, you know, rack your brain with doubts. Maybe <laughs> you could rob yourself of knowledge just that way. Um, but this kind of case looks like it's special because, precisely because you get to play that interesting role. Does that sound right? Yeah, I have to think whether there are other cases, but in this, yeah. there would, at least whenever your believing has influence, uh, although whether P is true, I guess there will be counterexamples in this general uh -huh. consideration. That's what it looks anyway. In the abstract, yeah. Uh, there's three follow-ups on this. Start with John. So, just leaving aside cases where your believing affects the world. I mean, there are tons of cases where uh, you know that uh, if you believe not P, you won't know not P. But for all you know, if you believe P, you'll know no P. Where if you go in for your principle, we get very distinctive results. Like whenever anyone tells you something. Suppose someone tells me Coventry City beat Manchester United or anything, or anything boring testimony. I know that if I believe the negation, I won't know it. I mean, you, if someone tells you something, you just go out right ahead and believe the negation, you don't know it. But by your principle, and you, for all you know, by trusting the person you'll thereby come to know it. Uh, but it would be interesting if you could then use the principle to basically say, in any case like that, you, you ought, ought, ought to believe. Or, Take a perceptual case, you get a glimpse of a tree and you're not sure whether you got a good enough glimpse to know that it's between 68 and 72 feet. But you know that you're not in a position to know that it wasn't in that range. But you, you know, and you might even think it's pretty un quite unlikely that you got a good enough glimpse to come to know that. You know? Uh, so it's un unlikely that you'll come to know by believing it, but you know that you'll won't come to know by believing the negation. Mm -hmm. uh, 
what your principal's saying is in any scenario like that, even if it's unlikely on your evidence that you'll come to know by believing that you should come to know, so long as it's inevitable on your evidence that you wouldn't come to know the negation by believing. You see, it's, it's, it's very, very powerful, this principle. It well, sorry, I thought... Uh, I feel like that principle is more powerful than the one I was pushing. The principle I thought... These are all cases where there's no... Ch you know there's no chance of knowing by believing the negation, but you know there's a chance yeah. in the evidential sense of knowing by believing the, uh, the other thing. So the, but, but it's only supposed to be that if you know you couldn't know... That, that's what all the cases are like. Yeah. You know you couldn't know. I know that I couldn't know that it's not between... Um, 68 and 72 feet by believing that it's not between 68 and 72 feet. And I do know that. But I, these kinds of cases actually sounded plausible to me, the way you're setting them up. Do they not sound plausible to you? <laughs> it's way <laughs> unlikely on your evidence that you'll come to know by believing. Well, uh, that was how hold, I on. Up. hold on. Uh, you just have a could. That's compatible with it. It's very unlikely on your evidence that you'll come to know by believing. I mean, not if, not if, so um, it's in the earlier version of the, so I have the theist version of the puzzle and then I give the general version of the puzzle. Yeah, I'm just talking about the general thing. Yeah. Where the, in the, the, in the general generalization of the thing, you say, given the choice between potential knowledge and guaranteed non-knowledge, it seems that one should act, should opt for what could become knowledge. That's the generalization. All I'm going after is that <coughs> generalization. Now, Oh, at the end. One yeah. subcase of that generalization would be a case where you know that you won't, you won't, you know that you won't know not p by believing not p. You know it's very unlikely that you'll know p by believing p, but it's possible on your evidence that you'll come to know p by believing p. And if that generalization held with full generality, then even in those cases, one should believe. But I was thinking that it's built into the case that, in so I say this in. Uh, I'm just reading out the generalization. No, I'm looking back at the where I give the puzzle. Um, there's an important bit that includes um, whichever one you choose to believe, that you regard it as likely that you acquire further experience or evidence which will re regard as supportive of the belief you have. So in the case of the tree, where you you get a quick look at the tree, you know. Um, that only by believing the thing would you then, as it were, pursue more evidence to get a better look at the tree or something. Um, that's how you'd get knowledge. Oh, 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 all yeah. I'm saying is the generalization at the end doesn't seem right. Okay, well then maybe the generalization just needs to build in a bit about the setup of the puzzle needs to include that whichever way you choose, you can, you can choose to believe P or not P, and uh, P would be eligible for knowledge if true, not P if true would be ineligible for knowledge, and whichever you choose, you regard yourself as likely to get more evidence. So even if you believe now, you think it's unlikely that it counts as knowledge, not just because you pick up the belief. You take the testimony case, and it might be, you know, whichever you choose, the, the news will then later in the day report the right. football score. Right. So, I mean... That's fine. You, you might think for football score, but this is for any, any... What you're saying is for any piece of testimony where you, you know that later, you know, you should believe. You should believe the testifier. And that's what your principle says. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Even if it's unlikely on your evi current evidence that you'll come to know by trusting the testifier. Just, just by trusting the testifier. Yeah. So long as it's possible that you'll come to know by trusting the testifier. And not some other stuff that's also going to be built, be added to your... Well, well I mean, we, we could build in that later in the day you'll get more evidence and you know that. Yeah. I mean, if it's a situation where you, you're interested in trusting the testifier now solely because you think that stands a chance to become knowledge, whereas what you have to go on now suggests that the contrary of what the testifier said. It's normally mean, like that. If someone yeah. tells you P, you know that if you just go right ahead and believe yeah. not P, you won't know not P. So right. nearly all cases of testimony are like yeah. that. But I think that look, makes this principle look more plausible, not less. It's just that it's too strong as written because it's fully general. I, I, I want to think about that though because it looks like you're going to have to su supplement it in some way to make it look more plausible in the, mo in the fully general. Yeah, I'd like, I'd, like, I'd like to see how you beef yeah. up the weak and the generalization. Thanks, yeah. Yeah, it just, I, just, I don't see how it's a negative for the view if it entails, at least on, on this principle alone, that you should always believe testimony rather than. Even when it's unlikely on your evidence that you'll thereby come. Because all, all the principal is asking you to do is compare, just compare whether you're, whether it's possible that you'll know it or impossible. Right, so if it's unlikely on your evidence that you'll thereby come to know, it's still going to be possible that you'll thereby come to know. And so what this principle is telling you is you should trust people where it's unlikely on your evidence you'll thereby come to know. I'm just telling you that's what the principle, I mean that looks like a bit, a bit, a bit That's what the principle as stated says. Um, but, but your decision is whether you should believe it or not believe it. When, yeah, when not, not, so you to believe, not believe, not believe, or believe the negation. Now, we, it's very clear you don't want to believe the negation in, in a case where someone does break. But the question is whether you should withhold or trust. And I'm, what I'm thinking is in a case where it's unlikely on your evidence that you'll thereby come to know, then it's... But it's more likely that you're that you'll it's more unlikely that you'll come to know by withholding. You might think because withholding's not going to get you knowledge unless no, you I, get. I know that. I know how the principles work. <laughs> so but what you're telling me is, well, I think, well, I definitely won't know by withholding, and yeah. I definitely won't. So I'm going to just give it a shot, yeah. even though it's weak. You know, that, that's the. Uh... No, I, I. It was roughly on the same point. Yeah. So is, is this a, a suitable weakening? But then I've got a case that I think. I mean, I took it that, that what you were a aiming for was the sort of situation where um, you haven't even investigated P yet, but already you know that no matter how much evidence you get, um, and whatever evidence is uncovered, it's never going to be sufficient to know not P. Um, so that then gives you a re an epistemic reason off the bat to leave P. So, so if, if you build in, the, the weakening would be, you know, no, no matter how much more you inquire, um, you already know that it's not going to be sufficient to believe not. Mm -hmm. um, is that? Uh, sorry, the last bit was, you already know it's not going to be sufficient to? It's, it's not going to be sufficient to know not. If you believe it, you're not, it's not going to be sufficient yeah. to yeah. turn that into knowledge. Yeah, yeah exactly. No matter what, what further inquiry you do, it's never going to be sufficient to have knowledge that not be. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of. Okay, so now here's 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 a challenge that's you know a lot more uh, out. Uh, 
we're going sci-fi now. I don't have to have <laughs> real-world examples. Um, so Dr. Evil now comes to you and says, you, know, you, you just consider P whether it's true or whether it's not true. And um, he flips a coin, so he's got no, he doesn't know whether P is true or not true. But he, he says, look, uh, you know, the coin comes up a certain way. So he says, um, if not P is true, um, and you come, and I, I find that you're believing it, um, I'm gonna you know, give you a memory pill that wipes out all your evidence for not P. Right? So, so then you are in this really strong situation, right, where you know whatever you get, whatever evidence you get for not P, you're not ever gonna know it. Um, so now does that then constitute an epistemic reason for believing P, uh, it doesn't seem right, right to me. So. But, but I, I was thinking your principle implies that now you've got an, an epistemic reason to believe P, because you can see you're never going to know not P. Uh, but it, what about the, what about believing the other? I mean, was there something built into the case that someone could tell you um, if you believe? Not P, you're never going to know, and they don't tell you why, but it might be because they know that it's false. So, I mean, yeah, maybe, but I, you're just talking about wiping wiping memory of evidence. Exactly. Yeah, it's not for that reason, because right? I, I take it in the, the you know in the Pascal's wager case, it, the reason you know that you're not ever going to know P doesn't have to do with the truth of P, right, or evidence for it or against it. Mm -hmm. It has to do with the stakes, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So this would be, this is meant to be a case like that, where you know you're never going to know it, but it doesn't have to do with someone having evidence, right, or actually giving you evidence that a P is true, or that um, not P is not true, or anything like that. So. I have to think about that case some more. It looks like it's one, it, it's, it's meant to be one-sided though, right? Dr. Evil's just going to deal yeah, with you, right. if you yeah. if you believe one, and not its negation. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. that's right. It's a regular. Yeah, I'll think about that some more, because it looks like it's also a problem. Okay. Um, so I want to follow up on uh, Jeremy's sort of line. So when I first read the paper, I didn't quite understand what was going on, and now I think I've got a better idea. So there's this two-stage approach. So in the first stage, you want to argue uh, about bare theism, some um, epistemological claims which make it uh, reasonable to take on bare theism. And then in the appendix, you want to say, well, once you've got bare theism, we can push you towards one or the other, and then certain things are not going to be live for you because now you are a theist of some type. Um, and it seems that the live option is building off of some of the stuff Jeff Jordan has done. See, that seems familiar. Um, but it seems that, that I, want, I want to argue against this in two ways. So the first way is I, I don't think this two-stage is going to do the work you hope it does because at the beginning, uh, when you're looking at the bare theism wager, uh, you have a lot more options than you will as an agnostic at the beginning than you do at the, the bare theist stage when you're in the appendix. So in that case, you can't rule out the case of the, um, the atheist uh, god because then your, um, your decision table is going to have possibly infinite utility for god not existing when you wager against god. Um, because at that point, you're not a theist yet, right? So at that point, that's a possible thing that you could believe. Or, uh, yeah, that's, a, that's open, uh, open for you. Um, so that's the first question. Maybe you want to take, maybe you can... Yeah, I just, 
I mean, this is just going to seem dismissive, but I've never seen the force of that kind of example against the wager setup. It just doesn't strike me as the kind of thing that's relevant at all. Um, it just it's just wheeling in what looks to be a logical possibility and okay. saying so you got to saying you got to add a add a line to the decision table, and it just doesn't. I think if you if you if someone were serious about looking at a decision table for these kinds of purposes, or any decision table. For some other purposes, and you wield in a logical possibility that seems, on your evidence, like only a logical possibility, far-fetched or something weird. The person's going to be like, "But look, I care about what really matters for what I should do, and that doesn't seem like something that matters." And so, I, right? Okay. It so doesn't, at, that point, at that point, you're going to get to bedrock, right? I, I think something. Yeah. Um, because I think the the bare theist is not very theism is very plausible either. But that's that's the first. The other way to go against this is if you take. Uh, what you take to be allowing for live options, you write. Uh, what page you on? Uh, I'll pull it up. I think it's 16. This point is important because only the options are live, blah, 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 blah. So, how do we figure out where something is alive? Because the possibility of an atheist aligned God does not appear in any religious tradition, this is not a live possibility. So, this seems like a weird claim to me. So, the, the idea is that. Um, Something is not a live possibility um, if, if it does not have a living religious tradition. But doesn't that mean that wh when someone develops a new religious tradition, it is not a live possibility at the point of development? Yeah, maybe. Okay, because that seems a bit weird, because then, you know, it, it, it implies that anyone that changes a doctrine in such a sufficient way that they have a new, they posit a new deity, yeah. it's not live. Okay. Yeah, that sounds right. Though I mean, in terms of like, uh, if uh, you know Joseph Smith comes along and starts with some yeah, new revelations, yeah, yeah. you know, it's gonna in order to start convincing people to whom that was you know previously not a live option, um, you're gonna have to have a lot. It's gonna have to have a lot going for it right. to get it to put them. Himself, when he creates, when he starts the religion, it's not live for him. Well, it is once he gets a what he takes to be revelation from God. I mean. I don't, I guess, um, but the only reason I say this in this context here is that I was thinking of the, the person who's doing a lot of comparative religion. <laughs> and for the person who's doing comparative religion, it doesn't seem to be relevant that they have to consider stuff that doesn't come up in the study of comparative religion. Um, but a person who is confronted with a brand new, as it were, purported revelation from God, um, it's a live option to them that God can reveal things, presumably. Um, otherwise, they'll just dismiss it out of hand. Then you're going to have to bring... You can't just say, I've got this new revelation and leave it at that. You're going to evaluate it for its content in the scenario and so on. And that makes it live to you. If it, some things about that make it live to you if it does. That seems, I think, the right thing to say about that. Does that seem right to you? Um, it seems that when you... The, the liveness of a, of, a, of, a, of a God doesn't seem to me to depend on the tradition. If we're, if you think that, say, say I'm a Christian, I think that the other traditions are wrong. It seems likely that I could be wrong, and that the other thing could be something that's not alive for me yet. And it doesn't seem that that's problematic, and so I should discount them because, uh, just because they're not, they don't have a living tradition. I don't know. To me, that that seems really odd. As a, as a well, I was thinking that those, those, that was the case where there is a living tradition in that last. Call. Situation. No, I'm saying. Well, okay. So I'm. I, it I, might not be alive to you because you've endorsed a tradition. In that sense, there's the two senses of alive. No, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Oh. Uh, 
Okay, let, 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 me, let me think about how, okay. to, how to say it more clearly. There's a follow up from Jeff. So, just the way you're using this notion of a live option. So, some people talk about there being an F7 chance of something being the case, or and, and the picture is that uh, anything that I'm not certain is false is an epistemic chance of being the case. Is that the view of epistemic chance? Well, there's one, there's one way it gets deployed. Um, I'm wondering whether using live option that way or not. So, when you say these things aren't live options, do you mean that I'm certain they're false, or do you, you mean something else? I don't mean that. Okay. That just seems too strong. So, and another thing you could mean is that I know that they're false. Is that is it supposed to track that? No. Um, so it's, it's some some other thing that's got life of its own. Yeah, I mean it's okay. like um, I mean I, I don't think we actually like work in this quantitative way often, but you might be like here are a few options. Um, this one's overwhelmingly plausible. These aren't, and that might be enough for you to be like, well, so these aren't. But it, it, it's going to depend on what you're talking about. I mean, just, so this, the way you're using the setup here then is just pretty different from the way a lot of people are using it. Because often the way things are going to go, I think, is uh, so we're asking questions about which beliefs would count as knowledge. And the way the story goes is I start with a really big decision table where what I've got on there uh, are all of the possibilities that I assign some, some uh, non zero credence. And now the question we're trying to answer is which of these possibilities are negligible? Which ones of them don't, don't count as far as mm -hmm. when, I, when I practically have to, have to make decisions? Mm -hmm. um, but that's, the, the, the ruling some of them out is something that comes after this calculation of uh, what's at stake rather than before it. That's, that's anyway, one, one standard way of setting these things up. Mm -hmm. um, it sounds like you're playing a pretty different game. That may be part of why yeah. people are resisting what you're doing. I don't have a full blown account of the game I'm playing here. I'm sort of drawing on, you know, James is the first one to use this kind of language about this being a live possibility. Um, and it looks like, particularly in um, doing comparative religion, uh, the more you, or, you know, if you're evaluating lots of other kinds of options that don't have to do with religion, the more a certain scenario or a certain proposition seems plausible to you, the less the other ones seem. And if it turns out that in, in wanting to endorse this one proposition, that on its own brings with it that these just can't be right, then this is just a way of making these less alive. But I don't have a, it'd be nice if I did, but I don't have such an account. Um, kind of just doing it in an intuitive yeah. way. I mean, it's helpful just to know that you're doing something different from some standard things. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. I <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Uh, so, one way I thought, I've always thought the pragmatic encroachment theory should go is to agree with the sort of standard evidentialist that uh, only evidential reasons could be reasons for belief. Right, so the only sort of reasons for belief you can have are evidential. Certainly the only kind of epistemic reasons you could have for these evidential. But now you want to go down Schroeder's way, in which we have non-evidential epistemic reasons for belief. That, I don't want to go down his way. I'm just using his way to see what it gets us. You see what oh, okay, to say. So, right. well, so just, I, maybe I'm not like a Schroeder. Right, right. But me, what you have to say depends on the assumption of his view, and I'm just going to ask you to maybe defend his view just a little bit. So, so I would think here, here's a pretty good possibly test for whether something can be an epistemic reason to believe, especially decisive, say decisive epistemic reason to believe. I think some of these reasons about missing out on infinite goods would be decisive. So if something is a decisive epistemic reason to believe something, 
then one ought to be able to rationally believe it on that basis. And I worry about this. I think a kind of inference, if I disbelieve or withhold, I'll miss out on an infinite good. If I believe, I'll get, I might get that infinite good, but I won't suffer any harm. So P. Looks to me like a, a way of reasoning that couldn't make me rational believe. So that makes me think those sorts of considerations can't be and now I know you, you aren't buying into his view, but I'm just worried that his view is wrong. Let me just, yeah. I mean, I see, I see the pull of that, you know, line of reasoning. I'll admit to that. Um, what I, what I, will, I think we need to draw our attention to, though, is that um, if this, I'm looking at my page five. Uh, I may have pulled out... A quote that's relevant here, but the, the block quote, which is the belief sufficiency principle, um, he talks about that as being a principle about evidence, about what makes evidence do its job. Um, and so on his view, he wants to say that epistemic rationality um, includes evidence because it has to do with how much certain other epistemic reasons can weigh in accord with or against one's evidence. Um, so this is supposed to be relevant to the notion of evidence, but he also says things like um, any reason can count as epistemic. So he's doing the thing you don't want to say, right? Because right. you want to say it's not epistemically rational to do that thing, even if it's pra practically rational. Um, so does he think you can too much about what he thinks, but does he think uh, you weigh evidence? So evidence provides some reason, and then there are these further considerations about missing out on infinite goods, or missing out on goods, or possibly believing falsely and having certain bad. He's way up, and so we should be yeah, sort of weighing these. You'd expect us to be contemplating these in <coughs> theoretical deliberation. Again, yeah, but so I was talking about this with Tim last night at the pub, and there are different ways to understand the... His, his kind of metaphor here, and I think the way I was using it, or thinking of it, was something like this. The belief of interesting principle provides a kind of like scale, what, where um, what the scale is for a proposition. If it tilts this way, it, the stuff you put on this scale that push, push you to believe, if you tilt this way, you disbelieve. If it's somewhere in the middle, then like, presumably that's suspending judgment. And the stuff you can put on the scale is first evidence, but also practical stuff. And so his whole thing in his paper is to say, Look, look, everyone, I can capture all the data about the stuff that's going on in these cases, capturing the bank cases and other things in pragmatic encroachment by, look, um, you had some reasons to believe something, put some epistemically rational bits that have to do with practical costs on the other side, it pulls you to suspend rather than believe. But since he's invoking the preponderance of costs, it, it looks as though he's going to be forced to say that, in fact, you can also put that same stuff on the other side and tilt you toward belief. Right. Um, he wants to avoid that because he uses as a foil at the beginning of the paper the stuff about how, the very stuff you're saying, which is like, we learned from Pascal's wager that it might be practically <clears throat> rational, but it can't be, that can't affect what's epistemically rational or make certain knowledge. Um, and I'm pushing back and wanting to say, there's nothing, I mean, you can draw a line and say, only these kinds of things can go on one side of the scale. 
but given the principles he's provided, there's nothing inherent in it that lets him draw that line. So this could be a way of writing, way of writing the modus tollens on his Kind of, yeah. And if, you know, if, there, if the whole thing of it is plausible, you know, some people might read this as a reduction. If, if pragmatic encroachment allows us to then have to say things like this about Pascal's wager, they might say so much the worse for pragmatic encroachment. Um, rather, rather than or this is bad for Pascal's wager. Or for Schroeder's version of it, right. But I think, I think that the kind of, I mean, Forgive me, but some of the stuff you guys say, I don't quite follow all of it, but I think if, you, if, I, if I understood your guys' principles perfectly, I think you could try to run the same kind of thing on your view and get a similar result. I'm just not uh, there yet to be able to do that, and so maybe, maybe you can't do that. Yeah, I think we'll get there with the other one. Yeah, hopefully. There's a follow-up with John and then Rob. On this... Um, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with all, all the ideology flying around, but you know, one, one should also look at principles on decisive reasons not to believe. So, just some, something that's in keeping with the paper is a candidate principle is uh, that you're not in a position to know is a decisive reason to not believe. And then an extra principle would be if something entails that you're not in a position to know, then that is, if so facto, a decisive reason to not believe. So then. Once we have the first thing as an entry point and a bridge principle yes. like that, then you can, via that route, get, uh, if, if you believe some of this pragmatic stuff, you, you'll end up being forced into saying that pragmatic stuff is a decisive reason. Decisive epistemic, re I, I, I don't understand exactly how that expression's been used, but decisive epistemic reason to not believe. You see what I mean? All so, I meant is if it's a decisive reason of any sort, then I ought to be able to rationally I'm just talking about decisive reasons to not believe. And, and the principle is if you're, that you're not in a position to know is a decisive reason to not believe. Now we could have a, that doesn't look like a crazy principle. And it looks. Uh, but I thought that's the principle you were questioning with your question. No, no. I'm trying to, I'm trying to sketch a way that pragmatic stuff could be, provide a decisive epistemic reason to not believe. Step one, we buy the, and then I'm doing it in keeping with the spirit of his paper. Step one, that you're not in a position to know is a decisive reason to not believe. Step two, if some P entails that you're not in a position to know, then uh, that's a decisive reason to not believe. Uh, step three, some pragmatic stuff that then explains why pragmatic stuff. Uh, Pragmatic some pragmatic encroachment stuff then tells you that some some statesy P's entail the on in the position to know, and then putting all that together, some statesy P's as a decisive reasons to not believe. So all, all I'm saying is we've got to look at that side too, and uh, uh, it, it's an interesting question where on that on that path one one, one gets off. You know. Can I add one thing about this, which is that um, I take. I probably didn't lay it out clearly enough, but I take two of the big upshots of my paper. There are two big upshots of this kind of paper. One is um, the maybe pragmatic encroachment of a certain style gives us epistemic reasons like Pascalian style to believe. But, the, but I think the more fundamental one is that it at least gives us a, like the grounds for saying that like the atheist in 
given the setup of Pascalian stuff, can't know. So like those are two, you might think the first thing is less plausible, the second thing is more plausible. Um, and if, if you get one of those results, that'd be you know, interesting, I think, on its own. If you get both of them, even, you know, even more interesting. Rolf, do you have a follow-up or a separate Sorry. question? It was a question, but I'm, I'm not sure whether, it's, uh, whether you may not have been effectively answering. Probably not. It seems to me <laughs> as though, at one stage, as though you were saying that the, it was not possible for the atheist to know, not possible, sorry, to know that atheism is true. Now, um, that presumably, if I'm understanding you at all, which I may not be, um, I'm not now following why that should be so, because it, it looks as though uh, everything is going to depend on what the live options are. Now, you see on page 16, uh, can't the atheist confronted with a simple wager scenario of people is not a live option for him? He, you say yes, he could do so, but only if, but only be rational if he gave zero probability to God's existence. Well, that's, yeah, that's just the normal discussion from Pascal's wagers and stuff like that. Okay. So I'm just going along with that. But if the, if the atheist really doesn't um, have the existence of God amongst his zero options, <coughs> Uh, then I don't see why it isn't perfectly possible for him to know, insofar as that means justifiably believe, or whatever we mean by it, to know that God exists on ordinary evidential grounds, or by uh, yeah, okay. pretty ordinary argument. Mm -hmm. So there's no special case against atheism. Mm -hmm. But is the, is the, this is something I don't know what to say. Um, maybe those of you who've worked on this a lot more can just give me a quick answer. But for someone who, Gives none, gives a zero probability, and that's the way they go. Um, the atheist that gives zero probability God's existence um, well, is how is that's how they, you know, are able to not have to worry about any of this kind of stuff. Does that individual thereby still get to recognize that there are costs should they be wrong? I'm not. I mean, I'm not thinking of somebody giving zero probability. I'm thinking oh. of somebody not taking it as a live option, which I think would be really quite different. Um, ah, sorry, sorry. Uh, the atheist will no doubt give some finite probability to God's existence. The atheist I'm thinking of, most atheists do, but um, uh, he just doesn't, she doesn't, doesn't think that it's a live option, so it doesn't enter her um, framework. If they don't regard it as a live option, then I suppose they don't, the thing is supposed to be that they don't regard it as a live option that they could be wrong. Right? They don't regard it as a live option that God should exist, yes, that's right. Um, they might find they have pretty convincing grounds for thinking that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. Now we're talking about subjective grounds, as I understand yeah. it. You're talking about what's it's epistemically rational to believe, given the assessment of evidence that one has. You were saying the Christian operates with revelation as evidence, and that's fine so long as you're talking about an, a subjective assessment of evidence. Yeah. And for the Christian, then, there are certain options which are open, and, and you've given a way of talking about the relationship between these, that's fine. But your atheist will have a quite different set of open options. And I'm just saying, mm -hmm. it's perfectly all right for the atheist to believe uh, that um, God's existence is not a live option, and for him, therefore, to come to knowledge, but to rationally. Um, it's not clear to me that that's going to work. I mean, it might. But I was thinking that in it, Anytime you believe um, with that kind of confidence, you can still assess what would be wrong for you, practically speaking, if you're wrong about it. And I think that's all that 
this pragmatic encroacher needs in the framework to rob you of knowledge. Um, if you just want to say, those just there's no there's no you know there's just no possibility that I'm wrong, so there are no such costs. If that's the scenario, then, but it seems to me that the atheist even who assigns any probability to God's existence ought to say that given this setup, if it's right, if it, given the pragmatic encroachments but framework, that if you say those that, costs will rob him of knowledge. Sorry, if you say that. Aren't you back with considering all the alternative theistic options? Um, you've dismissed those as not being live options, and therefore you could, cons you could constrict your table. Which, but sorry, which? Of the, the other those? theistic options, Islam, um, uh, the Greek gods. All That's a, like that that comes, so uh, remember, this is supposed to be a two-step choice. Yeah. For theism or against, once theism, then you, get, then you have to deal with that other problem. Well, why not take two-step choice for Islam or against? Because, it's a, so it's, a, sorry, it's a specific, it's going specific when you don't need to go so specific. Um, the options aren't just Islam or, or, or no God. It's, if you, once you introduce a specific option, you've got all these options you've got to include as part of the choice. And the whole point was to say, binary, there's a God or no God, which am I going with? And then from there, if I'm endorsing God, what are the God properties God has? It, it's, you could try to build it as one huge <laughs> choice, in which case it's just going to get too complicated. But I think I'm really not following here, because the, um, the atheist assigns a small but finite probability to, for there being a God, yeah. um, recognizes, as we all do, on most of the things we claim to know, that we can be wrong. Sure. He's not too worried about that. Yeah. Um, it, Therefore, seems quite legitimate for him to claim knowledge. That's all. In the, on any basis that we claim knowledge about such things, where we don't have certainty about the facts, so he's claiming knowledge perfectly rationally. You say the consequences are going to be appalling if uh, if there is a god. Well, they're only appalling on, as has been pointed out, they're only appalling on one rather old-fashioned conception of the way a god works. What's that uh, one? Conception? The one that Pascal was working with, a god who, a, a very eccentric god, <laughs> who punishes people for not believing in him. I mean, a very childish god. Pascal's wager doesn't depend on there being punishment. Well, rewards people for believing in him. Yeah. Comes the same thing. But that's not, what, what do you mean by? Rewards people for believing in him. Yeah. Um, now, that option is, is hardly, that's not the theist option. There are thousands of theist options. Most people who believe in God, um, as I do, um, don't for a moment assign more than the most minute possibility to the being a god mad enough to reward people simply for believing in him. Um, so I don't take that possibility seriously. I don't see why the atheist should take it seriously, and I don't therefore see why the atheist should be worried about that very, very remote possibility. Sorry, so okay, you're now introducing a whole bunch of other considerations all at once, and I, so I want to try to answer the question just at the level of, we, we, can, we can talk about what other conditions might need to hold in order for God to... I, I try to set it up so that we're just worried about this, this. taking this step is a necessary but not sufficient condition for getting any rewards that are on offer and so on. Fine. That's, that's, leave that other stuff to the side. If the issue is just that the atheist who's looking at a table like this, right, assigns a finite probability 
a very small one, to a God who would do such and such. Mm -hmm. um, I don't see why, on the framework of practical costs being used, that's not enough to rob the atheist of knowledge, even though the atheist thinks they have knowledge. Maybe the atheist says, pragmatic encroachment is false. So of course I know. <laughs> you were charging but, me for, for talking about Islam as if it's just one kind of theism. This kind of theism that you're talking about is just one kind of theism. Mm -hmm. It's a 17th century or perhaps an evil kind of theism, which uh, I think comparatively few people would believe in nowadays. Sorry, why is it only so? But, because the only live options that many people, I think, would feel are, are, are for uh, a benevolent God or no God. Well, I mean, here, one can't bring these wager considerations to bear at all. Benevolent God probably doesn't mind in the least whether people believe in him or not. Quite grown up. Okay, so, we're, so what? So it feels like you're doing a whole lot of theology just to fill in the table. And that just, just, is I'm not just, really the... I'm just saying um, that you seem on the one hand to be claiming that there's a, 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 a yes-no option for theism while talking about a specific kind of theism. You're reluctant to talk about other kinds of theism, including Islam, including, including gods, mm -hmm. and so on. Um, and you dismiss them as not live. And I'm not quite clear... No, I don't. I wasn't dismissing Islam as not live. What I'm dismissing it is as relevant for the choice between what's... Maybe it's just an implausible notion, but bare theism and atheism. Um, or, sorry, bare theism and agnosticism or atheism or n not bare theism. Mm. Um, we could talk about this some more, but I, I think it muddies the waters to start thinking in terms of like, look, there are other, th there are other bare theisms around. Um, there's a bare theism on which you get nothing from that God uh, as eternal rewards or something. Okay. Is that, is that what you're, is that what you're mm -hmm. I guess I'm just agreeing okay. with what over here. <clears throat> there's there's yeah. five follow-up questions oh, on, on, on this thing. But Mike, did you have a different question before? Yeah, I've already asked. Okay, Jeremy, did you want to follow up? Um, just, just quickly, so the atheist, so the, the way the line is being pushed now is that the atheist need not take as live um, the theistic hypothesis. So, um, so what if, what if the atheist doesn't take his live the theistic hypothesis it looks like the worry is that the atheist can know? Um, but there's another way the atheist can know, which is that you allow the atheist to take as live the um, punisher God, or the, you know, the, sorry, the, um, the believer punishing God, or the atheist rewarding God. Because that's going to add infinities to other rows on the table, and now all those practical the practical reasons are going to be neutral, yeah. and that's now just so now that's going to leave the atheist um, kind, of, kind of automatically satisfying the pragmatic yeah. conditions, and now, yeah. now now it's just going to be a matter of, of evidence. So, um, if, if as long as the atheist takes on as live all the logically possible options, um, the atheist is going to be able to know, and I presume the atheist does take as live if if. <laughs> Can I, can I just ask yeah. a clarification about yeah. this? I've, I, like I said before, I kind of don't understand the move. But it, the, if the move is to say, oh, um, a god that uh, rewards me as the atheist, is that, is that? And punishes. Then that's a theism line. Not an atheism line, right? It's a theism. It's a column. Because the whole point is to say, I, I believe in that god that would 
But but then it's, you're not an atheist. You're no no. You don't believe in that God. It's 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 a live possibility. So it's a column, and up there, in the in the believe in God, some God or other row, there is now a negative infinity. Okay, so there's two theism and down here, lines. The theism in the believe in um, no God row, there's a positive infinity, and so now there's you got infinities in each row, and he says, okay, fine. So now the practical considerations are they wash out. I think it's much more complicated than we're making it out to be. If you add a, if you add a line, just adding a column. <laughs> yeah, no a column. Yes. The lines are actions. The columns are possibilities. Radical columns. Imagine that you've got a rationality rewarding God who hasn't given us yeah. enough evidence for existence. I'd have to draw it out to think it through properly. I'm sorry about that. So I, I got to do it visually. But, but I, I take your point that if this is a thing that atheists can do. Then the atheist is in a position to say, hasn't encroached on my knowledge, uh, on my ability to know. I, that, I think that's right, the right thing to say. So I can know. So the atheist can know there's no God. Yeah, but the problem is if you, there's, if it's true, um, but there's some trickiness here that I think is uh, arbitrary on the part of the atheist who, I don't think it's arbitrary on the part of the atheist who wants to say, I assign zero probability to God's existence, and so this stuff doesn't even matter. They, they, it's not arbitrary because they're saying all logical possibilities are live for me. I don't want to live yeah. any of them off the table, so I'm going to yeah. put them all on the table. So I'm not. I'm precisely not being arbitrary. Yeah, but I've, it just feels like a cop out. I mean, it's not. It's not. To me, it feels like a cop out to do that, um, because it's like I don't know. Do, if you're an atheist, do you think that's a do you think that's a lie? It doesn't feel like a topic to me. It feels like exactly what you should be doing. That is considering alive all the options that are equally are possible um, and have non and have okay. non zero chance of being wrong. Okay, we, we're out of time, but I want to. Uh, there's three follow up questions, so maybe you can just <coughs> on, ask them, and then Matt can respond to one, maybe. Okay. <laughs> Choose uh, the easiest one. <laughs> uh, so there's uh, actually there's four. So. Josh first, and then, and then Carl. Okay. This was just another uh, case of the latter type, and I was, I was thinking of like an, an atheist whose lives options are atheism with multiverse or atheism with Big Bang. Those are the live options for that person, and then it seems as though no pragmatic encroachment from theism, so that person could know. That was my question. Okay. Yeah. So. Yeah. I was just hoping you could explain more of the difference between a live option and non-zero probability. It seems, if I've understood you correctly, it seems like you wanted to use the non-zero probability for filling out the theism, not theism table, and then the live option criterion um, in the second table. And if that's what you're doing, I wonder if you provide a justification for um, why those cases are different. Really quick. Um, uh, the, the table change for introducing that type of God is you add infinity in the opposite box. Your type one and type two errors uh, or don't have a dot, you don't have a, a large p stakes because you'll end up with type one and type two errors that are both infinite. That's 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 what the uh, that ends up happening. You don't add rows or columns. You just add an infinite outcome to the bottom right corner. And the other thing is, if you try to introduce all your logical possibilities as having greater than uh, zero probability, you end up with continuum problems very quickly. So that's a worry. So you might not want to introduce all logically possible options just because there's too many. Again, there's a final one at the back. Yes. 
if I'm not, uh, if I am a, an atheist, then I don't even believe in God. And if I don't even believe in God, if you're an atheist, you say. Yeah, if I'm an atheist, I don't even believe in God. If I don't believe even believe in God, how could I believe in the expected infinite value God could bring? If I don't believe in that, then the stakes are not high to me. So I choose to believe. So just answer one. <laughs> yeah. Um, I will admit that on this, I'll admit that I don't have much good to say about um, the difference between assigning non-zero probability and calling one live. I was thinking that a live a live option is clearly one you can't assign zero probability to, and beyond that, there's nothing else um, to be said. The only reason I invoke the stuff about, you know, at least a footnote about in the body of the paper about having to assign non-zero probability, because it's obvious from the setup of, uh, at least from Hayek, since Hayek, about the setup for Pascal's wager that assigning a non-zero probability gets you out of all these considerations for the atheist. Um, so the, any argument you might give for being rational to believe theism that stems from these kinds of rewards or costs or whatever won't go through if, you, if the atheist can assign non-zero probability. And then the way Hayek talks about it is, it's supposed to be like a postulate of rationality for the atheist or something that they'd have to assign something higher than zero probability. But again, that's debatable, like partly because it's not clear like what it is to have a zero probability. <coughs> Clearly, if you have a zero probability, presumably it's legitimate for you to leave it off your decision table. Um, but the question with the stuff about live is whether it's ever legitimate to leave it off your decision table if it's non-zero. Um, and again, I don't, I don't have a full-fledged thing to say about. I don't have very much at all to say about this point. I would have to work that out more carefully. Okay, please join me in thanking uh, Matt.